we're not like Wall Street, we're not publicly traded. Our mission essentially is to serve the unserved. That's why we're here. Good day and welcome to episode 188 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. Cooperatives are playing an increasingly important role in bringing high-quality internet access to people in rural areas. In some places, like Wilkes County, North Carolina, residents and businesses can get faster, more affordable, more reliable connectivity than many urban centers. Why? Because local member-owned cooperatives consider themselves part of a community. They recognize the need and often choose to invest in future-proof fiber infrastructure. In this interview, Chris talks with Eric Kramer, President and CEO of Wilkes Communications and River Street Networks. Eric describes the beginnings of the co-op and how the organization has gone from offering telephone service to services more in tune with today's market. Eric also describes how the co-op plans to expand. Neighboring communities, also passed over by big incumbent carriers, are turning to the co-op because they realize they may wait forever if they wait for the big providers. Check out the cooperative's website at wilkes.net and learn more about our expanding list of stories on cooperatives at the co-op tag at muninetworks.org. Here's Eric Kramer, President and CEO of Wilkes Communications, talking with Chris about the cooperative and much more. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell. Today I'm speaking with Eric Kramer, the President and CEO of Wilkes Communication and River Street Networks in North Carolina. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, uh, Eric, I'd like to start off by asking you to tell us a little bit about the area you're in, and then we'll talk about uh, your uh, organization and how you're expanding Internet access. Uh, So where are you located? We are uh, in the northwest sort of uh, quadrant of North Carolina. And so right where the Appalachian Mountains start is kind of where we are. So uh, when you're heading west, northwest of North Carolina, there's something called the, the Piedmont, then the foothills. And we are uh, kind of the foothills run up to the mountains. And so we serve a rural uh, area that is uh, rolling into a mountain range, basically. And so um, uh, very hard territory to serve. It's a rural area. And so very remote. Is that mostly farming area? Well, the, the, the mountains themselves aren't, but the, there's a history of uh, chicken farming here. So uh, Holly Farms chicken started here, and then that eventually turned into Tyson Foods, if you've heard of that. And sure. So yeah. This area is known as the birthplace of Lowe's Hardware. It started here, as well as Holly Farms chicken, which then uh, eventually turned into Tyson. It's really Wilkes County, North Carolina. Uh, and we serve. We are right here with uh, Wilkesboro and North Wilkesboro. We um, we are basically a rural broadband provider. Well, we started off as a phone company. We're a cooperative, so we're a nonprofit. We're owned by our members, and um, there are some farmers that got together. They needed phone service. These larger companies just wouldn't come here, and then how a lot of small rural companies got started was there are these spaces in between where these large companies just wouldn't go, and so. Uh, we've been around for about 60 years, and um, I've been here. I've been in the industry for 19 years. I was a consultant for eight, and, and I'm um, from Maryland. Moved down here, and at that point in time, we had just started putting fiber in the ground, and um, we just completed a complete uh, overhaul, uh, overbuild of our copper network with fiber. So we are completely fiber to the home to every single member, um, those up in the mountains and those out in the middle of nowhere, uh, and all of them have access to a gig. So we have an all IP network, and so we're one of the few companies are completely uh, done with that build. 
And so um, we didn't leave anyone on copper. We decided to go there, and, and we have an all-active network. So every single customer has their own fiber all the way back to uh, what you call a remote or our host. And so it's a little bit different than a coax network, a whole lot better. It's different than um, sort of what Google's doing in Verizon. That's a shared, it's a pond network. It's a passive optical network. Ours is active. So it's completely dedicated for each customer. And uh, there's no um, issues with latency or speed or sharing of the network, kind of like on a coax network. And so it's about as good as you can get. And how many members do you have? Cooperative members, we have about, I believe, 8,800. And so that's the voting members, the owners. Uh, and then um, that's really Wilkes Telephone Membership Corporation. Uh, the name we use in Wilkes is Wilkes Communications. It used to be Telecommunications, which, you know, we didn't – we wanted to move away from using Tele because uh, really we see ourselves as a broadband company. That's our identity. Since we're done with our co-op build and, you know, we feel like the lowest speed we offer to our membership is 25 and 5, 25 down, 5 up. And so that is a pretty good beginning tier. And then we go all the way up to a gig. And you can get 25 and 5 for as low as $35. And then we, we offer up to a gig. And you have a, tele, a television service as well, right? Yes. So, um, you know, really, we're kind of, we offer voice, broadband, IPTV, security systems, camera systems, business phone systems, IT managed services. Um, we have a whole suite of business services. We're in the process of beginning to resell um, uh, a wireless service over Verizon's network. Um, we're looking at potentially um, you know, reselling DirecTV Dish as a complement because our TV product, um, it took a little while to get it right, but right now we feel really good about it, and uh, it's right for some people. There's some content we just can't get. It's very small. It's very hard to offer IPTV as a small carrier. You just don't have a lot of negotiating power, and it's something we lose money on. But we're moving away from the traditional platform that we used, and now we're going to be going completely over the top. And so that was your, your original co-op territory. Uh, tell me about what you're doing in, in areas where you're expanding now. Right. And so uh, our territory in Wilkes, it's basically Wilkes County, North Carolina. It's uh, by, by landmass is the largest county in North Carolina. We kind of serve a donut hole. So there's two towns in the middle of the county. That is where CenturyLink is. Our co-op serves the, the remote rural regions in the, in the outside. We had to create another company. It's it's called a it's a CLEC is the name. It's where you can compete with other other carriers, and that uh, we started that about seven years ago, and that's all fiber. And then we we really kind of ran that, and now we're going outside of Wilkes County, and we created another brand called River Street, um, really because we thought that you know we didn't want to tie a name just to Wilkes, and so River Street um, is really it's our address. Uh, we went through a bunch of names, and they just had a ring to it. We created our own, our own logo and that kind of thing. And so uh, we started work looking at places that needed broadband, those areas that uh, didn't have 25 and 3. We feel like there's a lot of areas that get left behind with some of these large carriers that just are not going to get there in, in any time in the near future. And so we were approached by several counties um, asking us how to start a co-op. And we kind of told them, well, um, it's a little hard, but we have another company that we can help you with, and um, we can work some business cases. And um, so we've, we've worked with several counties uh, as River Street. And so that's, that's one angle to figure out um, how do we make a business case. And then the other angle is we acquired three small companies. They were independent telephone companies, and they were um, two of them are near Asheville, North Carolina, and then another one's uh, on the eastern side of the state in Wilmington. They were purchased, two of them back in the 70s and one of the 90s by a large company, and they just haven't upgraded the network. So we thought it would be uh, a good opportunity for us to, um, to acquire them, which we did, and now we're going to upgrade those areas um, to fiber to the home, and we've, we've started that relationship. 
And then um, this project we have in a rural county in North Carolina, and it's about an hour and a half from where we are. Um, we have already spent $2 million toward a 110-mile fiber build. Uh, we won the county business. And so that was a way to get that started, that process. And so our, our model in those areas uh, that are not acquisitions it's basically to work with the local uh, county government officials, uh, find stakeholders in the community, um, throw out sort of a value proposition that's a win-win for everyone. So what we would like to do is say, if you have a need to get broadband out residentially, because that's the hardest sell, where to build you know, a network that provides residential rural broadband, especially with fiber to the home and an active network, you have to have at least um, you know, the county business, which is the biggest customer, the school system, uh, those are what these large companies care about. And so to get the stakeholders involved and try to put together a plan, a long-term plan to win that business and then take that money and invest it back in the community um, by edging out on a residential basis in an area where no one else would go um, seems to be a, a pretty good proposition for some of these areas, especially the ones that uh, just don't have a lot of coverage and they're economically depressed and or being held back. Uh, from an economic development standpoint. When you're building out in those areas, I'm. Uh, it sounds like you've separated the historic co-op from the new um, CLEC ventures. Um, yes. Do they have any any chance of becoming members in the future, or um, yes. they do? Yes, they do. So our co-op, um, it's, it's a regulated company, and they're voting members. The three companies we purchased, they're a regulated company. They're just uh, not a co-op. They're not a co-op. We can merge those uh, three companies we purchased into our co-op and have them be voting members. It has to be approved by our membership. But anywhere we expand throughout the entire state, we could eventually merge all that network, whenever we get to that point, and make them non-voting members of the cooperative. And that's our plan, really, is to build a statewide CLEC where there aren't any existing um, telephone cooperatives. And so there's, there's eight total in the state. But there's a lot of places in North Carolina where there isn't an existing telephone co-op. But we look to partner with um, potentially electric co-ops um, and help them leverage fiber that they're putting in the ground um, to either operate their networks or to um, help them get into the business, as well as towns, municipalities. And um, we can build the network and fund um, you know, some of that. Or we could help them, a, a town or county, build their network, and they fund 80%, and we could fund 20 uh, The 20% is electronics, and then we could operate it for them, be that retail partner that they would need, subject to us getting enough of the anchor business. We've actually covered that model a lot. I think our listeners will be familiar with the, the importance of that. Right. And so right now you have these large companies that are taking the most profitable parts of the county and sucking that money out of that rural area and then leaving everything else sort of as a wasteland. Our situation is a bit different because we're a co-op. We have a cooperative mentality. And, and we're not like Wall Street. We're not publicly traded. Our mission essentially is to serve the unserved. That's why we're here. We're a broadband company. That's what we do. We understand rural. We are rural. We appreciate rural customers. And I think there's a business case to be made to put fiber out residentially in areas. But it's going to take it, 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 it takes a community effort and understanding to say we are willing to take the money that you have in this county that you pay your taxes with and put that back into your community. That's a seven, ten-year business case. Wall Street does not like seven and ten-year business cases, but we're willing to wait that, that far out to do that just because we are that passionate and believe in that mission. Uh, our mission for our co-op is essentially to provide excellence in customer service and add value to the lives 
of our members. And so we want to do that exact same thing. And so we view ourselves as a community partner, not just a service provider. You had mentioned that uh, people could become non-voting members. And I think uh, yes. people who aren't very familiar with co-ops might be thinking, well, what's the point of a non-voting member? This year, our owners consist of anyone who has service. So as a co-op, you have to be in the service area, the original service area that the co-op was formed in. And so our regulated area, study areas are, that were uh, created by the FCC and regulated. And so our traditional membership in Wilkes is in these four rural exchanges. They will always be the traditional owners of the co-op. Anything outside of the co-op is more of an expansion into these other traditionally regulated service areas created by the FCC. In our case, a lot of that's CenturyLink or AT&T. Okay? Cable companies, they expand over multiple service areas. So, for instance, we compete with Charter in our service area. So anything outside of that traditional customer base, as long as they reside in that original co-op footprint, they have voting rights. Anyone else uh, that just has service outside of the traditional co-op area that was established with FCC can be non-voting members, meaning they're members, they get allocated capital credits, they can, they can receive distributions and that kind of thing. They just can't vote in the governance of the membership. Right. And what you, I think you're saying is, I mean, just to, to really nail it down, is that they will still get some of the benefits in terms of a return on their ownership stake, but they will not be able to steer the direction the co-op takes. They essentially have access to the same rates that our co-op members have. We have the same prices for anyone, whether they're, whether they're a member or non-member. All it does is turn those, that business that, that, into a non-profit status, right? So there would be no taxes on that operation. This is essentially what it is. And so it's very hard to build these networks in these areas. And so by making them non-voting members and rolling them into the co-op, it, it helps us further that model and make it a little bit more um, sustainable by making them non-voting members of our co-op. Here in Minnesota, we've um, we have one of the few areas where people have found a way of uh, creating a new co-op um, for fiber. Um, and like you said, it's very difficult and very rare. Um, in this case, they have um, they're funding the infrastructure basically, and they're working with another local ISP to provide services in the way that you're describing that you do for others. Uh, is that the sort of thing that you'd be willing to to do? I mean, like if a county or even a group of people built their own fiber and wanted to lease it to you, um, pres- presumably under the spec that would work for you, is that something you're open for? Absolutely. That's that's the project that we started in Stokes County. So it's really, it, that's what I mean by public-private partnership. So um, even though we are essentially, uh, in North Carolina, our telephone membership corporations are essentially like entities of the state, right? We are a public entity, so to speak, even though we have our own board and that kind of thing. But our, our CLEC, this other company we created called, quote-unquote, River Street, we are that private entity, telecom provider slash technology expert, um, working with the county. In Stokes, we own the network. In the other counties, we would much rather have the county um, come up with the capital, and we help them design, engineer, build uh, a fiber network with their, with their money. And then um, that's, a, that's an investment that sits in the ground for 20, 30 years. We design the network, and then we put our electronics on the end, um, and then we can operate it for them. It would be an open network. They own it. Um, we would operate it, uh, it, it with, a, let's say, a 20-year right to use. We would sell commercially off of it, um, potentially give them back a percentage of the revenue for the use of that fiber, right? And then provide connectivity out to the world, a retail presence if they so wish. Um, and then if some other provider wanted to use it, we would serve as their agent for that as well. And so it's a really a way to sort of open up 
uh, municipalities to take the money they have and put them into assets, you know, tangible assets, with a trusted partner that understands their mission and what they want to do. And so we think uh, that there's a huge value proposition, a huge opportunity in, in this state, in a lot of counties, that are really begging for that type of partner. Right. Although I think the HB 129 law may complicate things in terms of just how they could work with you. That's where we'd come in as the operator. So we are the telecom provider. All they are is an infrastructure provider. Just the way I remember reading the law, I, I just I, I have to think that there are some ways that um, if like CenturyLink or others wanted to shut you down, there'd be ways of of monkeying with that, even though they're not providing any services. Um, I thought there was some sort of limitation and even dark fiber type approaches, depending on how one reads the law. You know, I think in North Carolina we have that flexibility. I believe that's the only way really around it is to engage in an operator. I know multiple counties that have their own fiber for their own IT services. They already have that asset in the ground that they could leverage. There are some school systems that have built their own fiber, right? Um, USAC, which is a funding mechanism for schools for, through E-rate, they provide funding for lit services, but there's also a program where if it makes sense, they will take, uh, I believe it's an eight or 10 year run of what the, the lit service um, uh, cost would be and invest that in capital. So the model's there. For school systems, counties, most school systems are funded by the county government or a large portion of it, to help them own their own assets. The issue is when they actually, who's the provider of the services. So we're a registered CLEC in the state of North Carolina uh, and, and now in Virginia as well, that we can be that provider and help provide them the expertise that they would need to actually, if they're going to build fiber or purchase an asset, to I think the most efficient way, most reliable, most scalable way for that investment to provide service to whoever they want. Uh, and that's more so for the backbone network. We sort of have this model where um, if you have a backbone network and we have most of the anchor business and there's a case there, if there's a 30% take rate somewhere, we will build taps off of that network as River Street and provide residential service to those customers. So really all the county or municipality would own is the backbone. And so that is really then an edge out into these residential areas. And so you know, we think that um, with certain tools that we can use to gauge interest, you know, crowd fiber is one of them that some we're starting to use to isolate areas and look at demand and you know, having you know, customers at one service be the champion for those roads or areas uh, to let us know where to build. One of the things I'm very curious about, when you, when you started describing your history, it sounded like the co-op's been involved in fiber for a long time. And as you noted, you've gone to fiber to everyone. And I'm curious if you can explain how you funded that, because if you listen to CenturyLink and the other telephone companies, they'll claim it's just not possible to get a return on investment in these rural areas. Their return is a little bit different than our return. So we have a longer horizon. It gets back to these are publicly traded companies, right? They're not going to build a network unless there's a certain amount of density. Now, don't quote me. If the density is less than 30 customers per route mile or 30 subscribers per square mile, so they're just not going to go there. They also expect you know, less than a four-year return on a lot of these investments. If the density is not there, it gets kicked out. If the case is a less than a four-year return, there's just, they're not going to do it. And they, they look at profit centers. They have a lot of copper out there, uh, a lot of these incumbents, and it's going to take them you know, a long time just to upgrade the areas that have the density, let alone those places, remote areas, these call them places in between, 
we're not as large as they are. We don't have the luxury of being located and having a nationwide network, or even a regional network, for that matter, you know, in multiple states. For us, it's a huge opportunity to try to get, you know, scale through passing customers. Now, we're not just going to build it and they will come. That's not how it works. There has to be demand there, and there has to be a root business case with um, being, you know, recurring revenue from um, anchor customers and commercial customers. And, and it's a slower process. But as a co-op, as a small company, um, we can, I guess, absorb a longer um, acceptable time frame for return on that investment. But where does the investment come from originally? I, I certainly understand that, that, that idea. All of our debt here recently has been through um, USDA, um, at the Rural Utility Service, which is RUS. And so um, our network uh, was about a $44 million network in our co-op. We have about $24 million in debt for that. Now, half of our network was just straight RUS loans, and the other half was stimulus. And so we received a 70-30 stimulus uh, loan uh, grant, grant loan, and that's how we finished the most remote portions of our network. These edge-out opportunities in River Street uh, the funds are generated from the cash flow from our existing business. There's a reimbursement for us um, committing to provide service to areas where no one else will go. These large companies get the same thing, just in a different form. And so you may hear some people call it subsidies. It, it's really what it is, is. It's a mechanism to at least keep you where you can provide that service. River Street receives no such subsidies. And so there has to be a business case there. Um, and that's where it requires... A, some kind of a contribution. They're going to have to come up with something. Even if we wanted to own the whole network, it can't be 100% on us. It just doesn't work. When you're talking about the way in which um, you do get that subsidy in the areas where you historically served, where no one else wanted to serve, where um, the cost of providing that network is so much greater than in urban areas, which is why we have that transfer from the more urban networks to the more rural ones historically, um, you know, the it seems like the FCC is moving away from that, where basically over time you're not going to be able to count on that. And in, and they're using that money to try and, in my opinion, I'll just say, to give it to AT&T and CenturyLink and others so that they'll upgrade to a slightly better version of DSL when, because we know they're not going to do fiber. And I just want to rip my hair out. I find it so aggravating. It's frustrating. USAC disperses this money and the fund, they say, has kind of gotten out of whack. And a lot of the money that they've historically given to these large companies, it, it, it gets funneled different places, and, and the, you know, they're for-profit, and they, they, you know, they, they answer to Wall Street and shareholders and dividends and things like that. And it seems like their investment really goes to their profit centers. And um, I don't think that they've proven over a period of time that they've used the money the way it should be. Um, we wouldn't have this many customers out there with copper and just getting dial-up let alone 10 and 1. I think it's, it's embarrassing that the definition of broadband is, 10, is now 25 and 3, but the FCC is still only funding 10 and 1 for everyone, let alone price cap companies. The issue is there's a budget. As we're running out of time, I wanted to note that, that it is worth noting that CenturyLink has the urban centers of your county, the, the population centers, and they didn't do anything with it. You actually built fiber all around them and then actually threw them because they just refused to take action. Yeah, we overbuilt them, and we won. We won the school system away from charter. We p- pretty much picked up in our donut hole eighty percent of the business. We won the county business, um, the hospital, the community college, uh, just because the people here get it. They want to do business locally, and we invest the money back in the community. And so, it works. The proof is in what's out there. You can see a national broadband map, and you can see where the money's being spent. 
you know, the, the large companies have their funding. Our small companies have ours. There's a shift between taking it away from those that have already built, which is unfortunate because we've already, we've already spent the money, right? Um, I think because we spent the money, we should at least be reimbursed for what we thought we were spending at the time in the system that we thought. That's the real issue. We're kind of knee-deep in that conversation right now. Um, there's a lot going on at the FCC. They're about to put an order out rearranging or changing the way things are. And they, they want to try to take the money and funnel it to companies that have not you know, overbuilt or upgraded just to get a 10 and 1. There needs to be a second round. There should be a higher benchmark of maybe 100 meg or a gig and let it go out for auction. We're in some changing times. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people that, that just don't have access to it. You know, they're not as fortunate enough to be served by an existing co-op that's out there or a small rural carrier that cares. Well, I think it's it's really great that, that you're expanding, uh, that you're presenting a solution for people in these areas that have been left behind. And and one of the things that I hope will happen is that like the state of North Carolina would establish a program that would make some va- some money available for communities to be able to uh, work with you as well. So um, let's hope something like that can help augment your efforts. And thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. That was Chris and Eric Kramer, President and CEO of Wilkes Communications in North Carolina. Send us your ideas for future interviews. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org. You can follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. You can also follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter, where the handle is at muninetworks.org. Thank you, Kathleen Martin, for the song Player vs. Player, licensed through Creative Commons. And thank you for listening to episode 188 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Yeah.